You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. Last week was the first week of NFL play. It started on Thursday night with the Eagles' close win over the Falcons, which was eerily similar to last year's first playoff game for the Eagles, where they held Julio Jones out of the end zone in the final few plays of the game. They did the same on Thursday night and came away with the first win of the season. But then we had a whole host of games, especially in the 1 o'clock hour and then at night on Sunday night that were really, it was a really good first week of football, Um, especially, we'll talk about it a little bit later in the show and dive into that Packers-Bears game Sunday night. But then the two Monday night games with Detroit getting blown out and then Oakland hanging close with the Rams in the first half, but then John McVay and company eventually pulling away. Uh, But right now, kind of in an overall sense, and I'll start with you, Jake, Give me kind of one takeaway, be it a surprise or a theme that you noticed in that first week that you think will carry forward throughout this season. Um, what is a tight end? I mean, I wrote that in the doc, and this is coming off the what I like to call the bridge tight ends. You have your top three tight ends, your Earths, your Kelsey, your Gronk. Your number four is whoever it may be is very far from the pack, whether that be your Delaney Walker or Greg Olson. And Walker got hurt this week. Those are your two kind of bridge guys to bridge you into your Evan Ingram, your Jack Doyle, your Kyle Rudolph bunch of good tight ends, just not as great as those elite dudes. Delaney Walker went down, most likely got for the season. Greg Olson went down. Greg Olson's injuries last year said he'll be out two weeks. I think he missed eight. Where, what is going on with this position? Gronk always gets hurt. I think Zach Ertz has been pretty healthy for his career, not perfect, but he's been pretty healthy, and Kelsey has been uh, hurt a little bit, and you are now seeing teams go three wide more. You're seeing teams throw your tight end on the line as a blocker. You saw that especially during Detroit versus the Jets, uh, Detroit losing Eric Ebron and the Jets not really having a tight end anymore. They're throwing th- tight ends on the line. That position, especially on Monday night, really started to go away, and you talked about it. Um, I don't know who was doing the Jets-Lions game, uh, but whoever it was, they were. they said like, I've never seen a tight end not line up in a passing pass catching role this much ever. So it's interesting to see if it's because we're kind of moving away from them and because three wide sets are becoming more important, or it's just a little fact that like tight ends aren't doing much anymore. Well, I think it could be the reverse of a trend that we had maybe three or four years ago when all of a sudden all of these basketball archetype guys came into the league and we have that whole discussion of, you know, how often do you have to even be attached to the line and block to be considered a tight end? Because yeah. so often a Jimmy Graham, even Rob Gronkowski, I mean, Gronk is kind of in a separate class. He can do it all. But a Graham and Ertz, Greg Olson, those guys were out in the slot so much that it was tough to, in times to distinguish who was a tight end and who was a wide receiver. Maybe now, and we'll see, but going along with what you said, Jake, maybe now we're seeing that trend turn back the other way, where teams realize if we have three solid pass catchers that are going to be on the field most of the time, everybody's running 11 personnel, everybody's running the ball out of 11 personnel, which is one tight end, one running back, then our tight end needs to be able to block, and there's less of a importance for him to be able to catch the ball if we have three guys in the route, plus even a lot of teams now utilizing the running back as more of a featured pass catcher out of the backfield getting matchups on linebackers. You see the most effective running backs in the game today, Todd Gurley, David Johnson, to name a few, are just as lethal as pass catchers out of the backfield as they are at running back. So teams both with, like you said, Jake, going three wide predominantly, 
you see that as a trend across the league and maybe also more of an emphasis on running the football out of three wide, which you would need a block pass or a run blocking tight end and passing it to the running back could see you reverting more to a blocking type tight end versus those guys who are split out in the slot and teams are really running like three or four wide with those guys. And that kind of goes off your point that you wrote in the doc, and I'll let you introduce that yourself, but they are so important for a lot of these teams with young quarterbacks. Like Patrick Mahomes had a field day at least having Travis Kelsey as a safety net. Um, and even Tyrod Taylor, not that he's a new quarterback, but he's a new system quarterback in the Browns organization, used Dave Njoku a lot on those short passes. With all these tight ends going down, especially two tight ends um, from teams with experienced quarterbacks, those being Cam Newton and Marcus Mariota, it's going to be really interesting how they fill those voids, especially for Cam Newton. Cam Newton could do it all. And now that kind of goes into your point that do they need a tight end? Are they good enough? Are these quarterbacks good enough without that safety net? And that goes into your point. Yeah, my point, my first kind of theme or takeaway from the week is that there aren't that many good quarterbacks. I think, or I should rephrase, there aren't many quarterbacks that you should feel comfortable with week in, week out. I think there are the the position is as deep as it's perhaps ever been in terms of quarterbacks who are mediocre. Who, it's, a, it's a heavy B-tier, who get, B-tier year. Yeah, who get the job done. Your Andy Dalton's, Ryan Tannehill, Blake Bortles. Like those guys, Whoa. those guys used to be maybe 15, 16, 17 in the league, and now they're 20, 21, and 22, and they're fine. They'll do the job. But you see Sunday night, the difference between a truly elite quarterback and all of these other guys that everybody wants to talk about, it's stark. Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady... Just those two on a tier of their own are so much better than everybody else. I think Drew Brees is on that tier too. I would, and then I would say there's the next little tier of Drew Brees, a healthy Carson Wentz, Ross. maybe Russell Wilson, and then that's and maybe Cam, but Cam is still kind of yeah. too inconsistent. Then after that, it's like, you know, is Jared Goff really that good, or is he? You know, he's just kind of like everybody else. There's no difference between him and Philip Rivers and Matthew Stafford. And I don't know if you can feel comfortable as a playoff contender unless you have one of those guys because you see how good they are and the the position is as deep as it's ever been, but we don't yet have a new class of quarterbacks that is in a position to replace the high-level play of guys like Brady, Rodgers, and Breeze once they leave. So just curious, Big Ben is not Tier 2 anymore, Tier 3? He looked ugly. He threw four no, interceptions I agree with to the, the Cleveland two, Browns. Tier three okay. placement. I, mean, I, I was just wondering. The Cleveland Browns secondary is really not that bad. Their defense is it's, not terrible, and it's Big Ben in a visiting stadium without perfect weather. Sounds like a lot. I mean, it's 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 bad. Big Aaron Rodgers doesn't get those excuses. That's yeah. my point. Is that, Big ben, no, is that Big Ben is completely right? He's a fine quarterback, and there are a lot of guys like him: Jared Goff, Philip Rivers, maybe Jimmy G, Deshaun Watson, but. The guys who are truly elite that every single week never have a bad game, that no matter what's around them, will put your team in a position to win more games than the games they lose. Those guys are few and far between. And I think that we talk, we get so excited about a lot of these young quarterbacks too much and that yeah. they really quite aren't really to the place that we talk them up to be. And it's going to be so hard for them to fill in for these elite guys because we just came through one of the greatest eras of the top-tier quarterback ever. And yeah. I think once those guys move on, we're 
heading into a little bit of a downfall where everybody's going to have a decent guy, but the the, you know, the separation, they won't have Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady's anymore because those guys are some of the greatest ever. When you think about it, without adding that little, like, small, small top of the triangle that contains Brady, Breeze, and Rodgers, there are pretty much five, in my opinion, those three with Russ and with Cam that have that elite ability. I... Healthy Carson Wentz, small asterisks. Healthy Carson Wentz, I'll put in that group. Um, if not, he's the top of the second tier. But that second tier, and like I kind of mentioned before, is massive. Every other quarterback, probably besides whoever the Bills put out, um, is in that tier. Because yeah. they're serviceable. They're serviceable dudes. And the top of that tier is the Jared Goff with a Todd Gurley behind him. It's important to note that it's not really just Jared Goff. It's Jared Goff and Todd Gurley. It's a package system. It's not really just Big Ben. It's Big Ben and A.B. and Le'Veon if he plays. Those... Right. Yeah, but I'm, what I'm saying is those individual quarterbacks, like if Aaron Rodgers had the supporting cast that Ben Roethlisberger does, I mean, forget about it, right? Like they would never lose a game. Well, what I'm kind of saying is like they're there in that middle tier because they might aren't really the greatest quarterbacks because we we see Jared Goff being yeah. a good quarterback. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But got it's you. because he has a great, great RPO behind back. him. Uh-huh. A small caveat: Did you see Sean McVay's interview where they asked him like week th- week three, second and seven, fourteen minutes on the clock, what was the play, and he put the play to perfection. Yes, yeah, so they actually. So that actually like his ability to recall basically any play in his coaching career. I first saw that. Last month on HBO Real Sports, they did a Sean McVay feature, and Bryant Gumbel has the the little list, and he's like, all right, 2015 with the Washington Redskins. It's October, whatever, week four of the season, Redskins at Giants, third and seven, with you know 321 left in the second quarter. And he goes, it's a wheel route to Jamison Crowder, 23 yards, he caught it, made a man miss, and scored a touchdown. So him and LeBron <laughs> have, like, those crazy memories to where they're just able to well, replay. Well, Le- LeBron broke the play down, like, for like an hour after it happened. Sean no, McVay but, like, I've seen down. stories to where, like, if True. he's just watching a classic basketball game, he'll be like, oh, yeah, that's game five of the 1988 championship. And right. it's just this guy's going to score another, 37. Yeah, yeah and it's and another level of just intelligence that it's insane. Nick, your big takeaway? Ooh, my big takeaway. I think... It's the impact of running backs to where we've seen them instead of just being just runners, they also need to be pass catchers. And I think it's definitely, especially in this year, you need to have that on your team. And as going back to what you were talking about, separation of quarterbacks, like once the tier one guys go, we'll have just an even playing field of basically just good quarterbacks and no one really separating I think the running backs, if you have a great running back, that's going to separate this team from that team. I, especially with a Todd Gurley who can pass catch in the backfield. Um, Zeke, who's starting to do it more and more. Teams are starting to learn, hey, we need these guys to have hands. That's why you're seeing third down backs and those guys getting more opportunities. Like a Chris Thompson, a Tariq Cohen. I mean, those guys are just getting more just chances to come onto the field and play. Do you think it'll get to the point that every team will begin to place an emphasis on getting one of those elite guys like a Todd Gurley, like a David Johnson? Or do you think it's 
to where those elite teams just have to have a good pass catching back, not necessarily a back that can do both. Team's going to run a two back set, I think, more often than running a Todd Gurley and do it all kind of guy. Because, you know, you think about a team like the New England Patriots that never invest in a big star running back. They're not going to put any of their salary cap in that position, but they find a way to have Danny Woodhead and then James White and then mm. Deion Lewis. They now do Rex have they they're one of those first teams to have those small shifty guys that you're talking about. Yeah, I think more teams will shift towards basically what the Falcons do with Freeman and Tevin Coleman. I think that's what the package will be. I mean, especially talent with the draft, you're only going to get your girlies, your Barkley's every once in a blue moon, so it, it would be hard. Which is why the Steelers should pay Le- Le'Veon Bell every cent of his contract, because you're not going to find I anyone ever like him ever again. I fully agree with that, and I'm so pissed at the Steelers organization. I, it, It's tough. I There's the running hot take of the year, pay, pay Le'Veon Bell. Uh, here's, here's one quick pet peeve of mine before we go to break on that note, and you kind of alluded to it, Jake. And I, I don't quite have an answer for this, but everybody... Everywhere, when a team has two running backs that are good, everybody says, oh, they're going to be able to run two back sets. Oh, this is going to be so great. You put Darren Sproles on the field with DeMarco Murray. We talked about that years ago. We talk about it here. You can have Kanai Kane on the field with Dejan Lee. They both do different things. And my thing is, like, I don't know it, the last time I've ever seen that actually happen. There's only like, one ball. Well, like, everybody says we're going to run two back sets, and nobody ever does it. And I don't know if it's because it's not effective or because – you know, those running backs have to rotate it in and out. But I went through, so I'm going to write this story in a couple of weeks for the review about the Delaware offensive personnel. So I, this whole afternoon, I spent rewatching the Lafayette game, and I charted all of their personnel groupings. And they never once had two running backs on the field at the same time. And they, most of the time, ran out of 12 personnel, which is one running back and two tight ends. So they rarely had more than one guy in the backfield at one time, whether that be shotgun with a running back to Kehoe's side, pistol, or Kehoe under center. So my question is to you guys. You think about Carolina Panthers a couple years ago with Jonathan Stewart and Christian McCaffrey. Think about the Eagles with Sproles and a guy like Jay Ajayi or the Falcons with Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman. Even the Chiefs for that one year when they had uh, Jamal Charles in the last year of his contract in the first year of um, Kareem Hunt. or Yeah, Kareem Hunt. No, No, Kareem Hunt never. Uh, Well, they overlapped in preseason camp. And everybody you think thought. Tarkantric West. No, I think it was Charles and Hill. Spencer Ware. Spencer Ware. That, that could it. be Spencer Ware. Spencer Ware. When it was Spencer Ware, and they thought like that was the greatest thing since sliced bread, that it's going to be pure dominance. Well, like I think that that's fine the tandem, but my thing is, I listed all those guys that have different skill sets. One's a runner, one's more of a catcher. My question to both of you, if you can project or have any conjecture about it, why don't teams put those guys on the field at the same time? Because I've never seen it. And everybody talks about it like it's a thing that actually happens and like it's something that teams should be doing, but they never do. I think it's because there's only so much value that two running backs on the field can give you. And I said it before, there's only one football. So if you take the snap and you look to pass to your pass catching back, you assume your run, running back will provide the blocking, why don't you just put a tight end on the line who's going to block exponentially better than most running backs? Because um, most tight ends are bigger than most running backs. If you give it to your running back, is your pass-catching back supposed to block a linebacker coming in? Because most pass-catching backs are small. I mean, Sproles is the biggest example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not going to be able to take out a Luke Keekley kind of guy rushing at oh, him. Oh, I know, I know. 
Don't underestimate Darren Sproles. I'm not underestimating him. He gets low. Him. He gets low. <laughs> I'm not underestimating him. But you're, you're telling me that a Luke Keekly. Well, well, he's not going to take him one-on-one, but he can, you know, pick it up. You know, running backs aren't going to sit there and block. But right, if they can come up and chip, and, the, and then the quarterback just, just, away away just put the tight end yeah. in. The tight end can hold him more. The tight end can push him around a little more or give him a big enough gap. That's why I, I, it's not – I agree with you. It's not ever happens because it doesn't really work as well as most people think it does. So then my request to the general media is stop asking for it. Because they're not going to do it. Oh, it looks cool. But it looks so great. exciting. I mean, look at the Saints with Ingram and Kamara. But do they put them on the field? I mean, they, they I, actually seen do it for sometimes. Like a, They'll put Kamara couple, out wide, yeah. To where they either put them out wide or Drew Brees will have just in a shotgun, both of them on a side, and then fake it to Ingram and then screen pass to Kamara there. I mean, it it works. And if teams could model that, I mean, look where it got the Saints to the NFC Championship, I mean. True. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We brought Nick in today as he's one of our broadcasters on the Cornell game this weekend to talk a little Delaware football. The Blue Hens 1-1 one one on the season after the 37 to nothing win against Lafayette after having lost 21-19 to against Rhode Island in their season opening win. What did you guys take away from that big win over the Jaguars? Or what are they, Jaguars, Leopards? Leopard, something Leopard dumb. yeah. Okay. Um, what did you take away from that? I thought Pat Kehoe looked clean, like really clean, whether that be relative to the opponent and the defense they were playing. I thought Pat Kehoe looked very good, especially on the first two drives. He hit Vinny Papali with an incredibly imp- impressive pass on the far side sideline, and Papali made a great catch on two there. Two three guys. Yep. That was a really great pass. Yep. And he was just, you see him getting more and more confident, and you see him getting calmer and calmer. And again, whether this be relative to the, to the opponents or not, he just looked aggressive. He took the took the risky passes. He threw, um, I believe, a pass to uh, Joe Walker in almost the middle of the field in double coverage. What well, it was it was incomplete. He threw it over Joe Walker's head. Yeah, but there was also one early in the game that was to Walker where the corner was on Walker's inside shoulder, and he did put the ball to his outside shoulder. It was a really nice spot, and Walker couldn't come up with it. But if you were gonna make that type of throw, I mean, he put it right there yeah. for him. And, you know, it's a tough play to make, but he let Walker have a chance at making that play. He looked a lot more settled in, and that's, I think, the biggest takeaway. The running backs look good. The defense, obviously a shutout, but I think the biggest thing is that Pat Kehoe looked real good. What do you think, Nick? Besides Kehoe, I mean, Charles Scarf is starting to become a favorite with yep. his second touchdown of the season. Um, had a first one in, against um, Lafayette. No, this is who they Rhode played. Island, Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Um, but we had to watch that uh, whole yeah, reel so many <laughs> times. Forgot. Um, I mentioned that last week. Nick and I are in a uh, video class where we do these highlight packages, and we I watched the highlights of the Rhode Island game like 20 times at this point. <laughs> yeah, I kind of just like ducked out because I'm like, I can't watch this this many times. Um, but Charles Scarf looked great out there, just becoming Kehoe, and I think those two just have chemistry um, with each other. Just being able to go out there, especially getting a touchdown, he's obviously a red zone favorite and then the running backs just the committee they have i mean you could switch it up at any time i mean from dejon lee to kanai kane to Corey spruel i mean it's it's great this offense so far right now kane led the way with 35 snaps for the blue hens lee had just 19 he only played two snaps in the second half Corey spruel had 18 but Dejan Lee, to me, really stood out in this game. He had an impact in the first game against Rhode Island, but in game two, I mean, he was bursting through a lot of holes in that second quarter, 
averaged over eight yards a carry. I was really impressed by him. But what, what Rocco said there was that as a team, they talk about trying to have the edge of an underdog while simultaneously having the confidence of a team that has playoff aspirations, that wants to be one of the best teams in the CAA. And it was important to him that they displayed that in this second game of the season, given how that first game went, that they still had the edge, that they still had the confidence to come out and handle a game that they should have handled. This was not supposed to be a challenging game, but they were able to come away with that 37 to nothing victory. And now they look toward another game that's similar in scope, another game that they should probably handle against a lesser out-of-conference opponent, but it's an opponent in Cornell that hasn't played a game yet this season. So it's a little bit of a different challenge for this team, not having anything on tape from this current season to look at in reference as they build their game plan. Yeah, it's tough heading into a matchup to where you don't know about your opponent. It's just very mysterious. You don't have film on them this year. You just have a roster. You just have some highlights from last year, a couple games. I mean, just for coaching reasons, just being able to see their um, just schemes, their personnel, what they like to bring onto the field, it's tough. I mean, the but the Blue Hens, again, like you said, Brandon, should handle this. It's just looking to keep this momentum going. They just need to just keep Kehoe, just giving him the confidence in short down plays and then just keep the drives going, keep first down, moving the chains. But again, he went on to say is that, you know, Cornell... Yes, they will have the advantage as far as being able to see what Delaware has put on the field this season, but Delaware has been able to play two games and get out those first-week emotions and rust that Cornell won't have gotten out of their system, that Cornell has not had the opportunity to build any chemistry in live game action, where Delaware feels, especially in the passing game, they've started to build a little bit of chemistry and something has begin, begun to gel with this team. And that's, you know, a difference from what Cornell brings into this one not having played. And But this is not a team that they've never seen before. And, yes, they haven't played them. And I do agree that that's not easy to look back on and try to find uh, intel on them. But they didn't get rid of everybody. It's still the same basis of a team. This is a team that's been very good on their opening day. Um, they have... Uh, almost an astronomical 75% win. They're .723 for the win ratio, but they've lost three of their last five. Um, so I think Delaware shouldn't be um, unprepared. Like we've mentioned, yeah, there's no game footage. Yeah, there's no game knowledge. They should be unprepared. This is a team that they know. And they also are coming off a big win against Lafayette, a team that they beat already. We talk about momentum a lot. I think this is going to be a momentum builder for them, and I think this should be handled no problem. Now that we're through two weeks of the season, one of the things that actually the three of us all spoke about at the beginning of this year was our list of breakout candidates. We had the whole podcast where each of us had three guys who we said, these guys are going to jump out, they're going to exceed expectations, they're going to be stars on this team, or they're going to come from that kind of role player section of the team into a regular every week contributor. Now as we get a little bit of an opportunity reset, obviously the sample size is still small through two weeks. But my question to both of you is that, or is there a player that through those first two games of the season has exceeded your expectations? It doesn't have to be somebody from that list, but is there somebody that you weren't expecting to be as big a contributor as he is now to this team through the first two games? Yeah, I said Joe Walker, and I think Joe Walker has exceeded expectations. I think he's 
moved into the wide receiver one slot over Jamie Jarman. I think that the team is more used to having him in the wide receiver slot and utilizing him as a wide receiver. And he's made those big-time plays, especially the corner end zone uh, touchdown against Rhode Island, where it was a highlight play. And even this game, Joe Walker was a, a force to be reckoned with. I think he's exceeded at least my expectations, and I'd say the team as a whole. Not anyone from my three, but someone new. Mm-hmm. I think Deshaun Lee really, through this mostly the second game, it's just he had a great play um, throughout, just rushing, just changing up the tempo, things like that. And I think he's going to continue that um, throughout the season. I think he's going to be a big contributor here on out. To me, a guy that stood out last game was Vinny Papali. I think that's probably an easy one to pick from that last game. But he made a couple of nice plays with guys around him that probably wouldn't have seen players of his area being that third receiver on the scene that we wouldn't have seen them make plays the last couple of seasons. I'm interested by a little bit of what you said, Jake, in that you know Jamie Jarman has not been quite as involved as I think he would have been, which does kind of lead me to my next question. But still on this, um, I think that's also given the opportunity for Walker and Papali and Charles Scarf maybe scarf the most to yeah, take, nice take to a bigger show up. yeah take a bigger slice of of the pie of the passing game uh because you know, not that they haven't tried to get German involved or that he hasn't been playing well but he just you know, in two games has not had that many catches Vinny Papali was really that guy in game 2 and Scarf has consistently been a guy in those first two games that they've targeted more than they I mean, he's got I think he has eight or nine catches this year Last year he had 13 for 73 yards, and he's got well over 100 yards already this season yeah. in two games. He's looked good, and I think that's kind of what we talked about in the NFL section, that with a new quarterback, your best friend's your tight end, and especially a big tight end like Charles Scarf, who runs those short routes and runs those slant routes well. Fits well. Fits good. It's a good fit for Takeo. Does that answer your question for what's a tight end? Uh, in college, yeah, Charles Scarf's been a good answer for me. Player through the first two weeks that has not played up to your expectations. Oh, we just said it, and it's Jamie Jarman. Um, well, give me somebody else. Okay. Um, somebody I said. I thought Gene Coleman was going to be more. I thought Gene Coleman was going to have a larger role yeah. on this offense. I thought he was going to be Non-factor. That, that steady slot man. And he's, That's Vinny Papali. Vinny Papali. And I thought he was going to be the kick returner now for the... But he Dejan almost Lee. lost that role now, too. Uh-huh. Uh, he was in for garbage time. He made, I think, one or two good catches. Uh, I wouldn't say good catches, but he made one or two catches last game. But he's... I thought he had as much of... Uh, a grasp on a receiver position as anyone else. He's been pretty he's much just another, He's just another guy. He's a point. body on the sidelines. Yeah. He, I mean, he's he's the same as Tyreek Pitts, Ty McElhaney, McElhaney yeah. Andrew Verboise. He's any one of those guys, the five, six, seven, eight receivers on this yeah. team. Nick, do you have anybody through the first two weeks that has missed your expectations? Man, besides Adderley, the whole secondary for the Blue Hens. I mean, especially after that Rhode Island game for that 57-yard touchdown to where they just got there were four guys in that area and how that receiver came up with that ball for the touchdown, just insane and just it gave that quarterback Lawson for um, the Rams the confidence to just keep throwing all over them and the Blue Hens just weren't able to stop it and it's just been disappointing to see that especially yeah. from last year that secondary just being uh, more formidable and just being uh, more I guess dangerous um, for offenses to get around. Yeah. It's it's just tough to watch this year. And excuse me, um, you know I think that's something that could probably turn around, but 
it, you have to evaluate the way that they've played in these first two weeks, and I agree with you that that's disappointing. And and uh, you know Adderley's going to be the standout, but it comes to those cover guys, Nigel Hill and Tenny Adewusi. Hill in particular, that first week I think got beat a couple Burned of times. Burned a bunch. Yeah, yeah. By, I mean, and then Aaron Parker again. That's a tough matchup. That's an all-conference receiver on mm. the other side from you, but and Jawan Lawson looked good. Yeah, and the, yeah, and he played, and he's played now in two games. Um, we might talk a little bit more about the CAA at large later, but through two games, he actually has looked a mark way higher than he was last year, and that whole Rhode Island team has, which bodes well for Delaware if we want to talk playoffs, but that's obviously far off. Um, but, yeah, the secondary is, is a place that could use improvement for this defense. I'll also just quickly say the defensive line I would like to see, especially against these two lesser opponents, a little bit more pressure on the quarterback. Um, Frank Burton, week one, had two sacks, but nobody else has really stood out to me on the defensive line. So I'd like to see somebody you know, take a big step up and have a couple tackles for a loss and get, get that side of the ball rolling a little bit. Last thing, somebody who on the defense actually has stepped up and exceeded expectations is actually Armin Ware. Um, I feel like I've been saying his name a lot more than I've been used to, whether that be because he was on, on and off the field. But... Um, He's been really good in that linebacker position and that kind of free roamer. He's also been playing some defensive yeah, end. Yeah, that free roamer position. Especially when they're on third down. Um, He's been really good at rushing the quarterback and getting through those blocks. So I think that's another player that I've got to give a little shout-out to exceeding expectations. What are you guys expecting this weekend? This is Blue Hen Sports Gage 91.3 WVD. What are you expecting this weekend between the Hens and the Big Red? I mean, should this be another game where we're talking 30, 40 points to, to hardly anything? I'm going to put it more towards a Rhode Island where not that... That's scary, then. Yeah, <laughs> not that I think Cornell uh, is going to win. I think Delaware's going to win this game, but I don't think it's going to be as easy as Lafayette. I think that Delaware might choke up a little bit on this game, but I think nonetheless it'll be a Delaware victory. I think you'll see Cornell put up points on the board. I don't think it will be a Rhode Island situation, but I think it will be a close game in the sense of a touchdown separating it. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. NFL Week 1 in the books, in my opinion, and probably everybody's here. Best game of the week was Bears-Packers Sunday night. Aaron Rodgers, injured in the first half, tries to get up, can't get up on his own powers, carted off the field. Deshaun Kaiser, former second-round pick of the Cleveland Browns, so you know he stinks. He comes into the game. You think the season could be over for the Packers before it even started. The Bears jumped out to an early lead. They're leading 20 to nothing early in the third quarter. Mitch Trubisky looks on. Tariq Cohen's all over the place. Matt Nagy's got them running these crazy schemes. And then here comes Aaron Rodgers in the third quarter. He's walks a bad his way, man. Walks his way back out on the field. Can barely move in the pocket. Turns out he's got a sprained knee. And it doesn't matter. He picks apart the Chicago Bears defense. It came down to a point where they needed a, I think they needed a touchdown to, to win it, and they gave the ball to the Packers with a little over two minutes to go, no timeouts, and you're like, it's over. And Aaron Rodgers is going to find a way, and he connects over the middle to Randall Cobb, who goes 75 yards for a touchdown, oh, the breaking Geronimo right through. Allison pass. It was oh. it was an amazing finish to the game. Aaron Rodgers finishes with like. I think 275 passing yards in the second half. And again, he came in halfway through the third quarter. And the Packers come away with the week one win over the Bears. Uh, We'll talk about the Bears a little bit. But, I mean, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, That's we'll have to monitor his health. Obviously, that's the biggest thing with this team. 
and th- at times it seems like there are factors on this team, whether it be the coaching or the other players that get in his way. But when you just tell him to bring us back into a game, we're going to throw in every down, and you pick apart the defense, it's it's easy to forget how good this guy is. He he is truly one of the greatest to be at that position. He says, leg schmeg, like he just goes, relax. I'm coming out here. I'll get us the W. I'll get us the win. It's easy. It's the Bears. Like, it's just, uh, right. even with Khalil Mack. Like, right, then he's it's, like, it's the same Bears. I'll take yeah, care of them. It's just like, what more could they do? And I just, it was amazing to watch, but tough to watch for the Bears. Yeah, yeah. I, and a lot of people saw that coming. ESPN put out a tweet at halftime that was like, the Bears are up this big, OMG, Aaron Rodgers out, gasping emoji. And then you get that notification on like, Aaron Rodgers is back. And everyone's like, all right, well, I'll get the Packers 1-0 and the Bears 0-1. Because you just know what's going to happen. The pass to Geronimo Allison was ridiculous down the right side when the dime he placed. And then the Randall Cobb catch and run was even more impressive. It's nothing we haven't seen before. And the saddest part is, I don't even put that in Aaron Rodgers' top three top plays of his career which is ridiculous on how good that one looked. I don't even put that in the top three. Yeah, That's, that's Aaron Rodgers for you. I mean, the first one that comes to thought is the Jared, Jared Cook, Cook play. Jared Cook play, where he made Jared Cook look And then the second one good. is the Hail Mary against the Lions. To Richard Rodgers. Yep. And then there's that game against the Cardinals really mm-hmm. early in his career on that Super Bowl run where it was like 50-something to 60-something in overtime. And, I mean, Drop every time. single time he was just up and down the field. Aaron Rodgers and the Packers are going to score. Yep. The Bears, on the other side, start hot. But then when it comes down to it, their offense falls apart in the second half. The defense looks strong at times. Khalil Mack had a huge game in his Bears debut. Why, because of Bilal Nichols? <laughs> yeah, Bilal Nichols. I didn't see him play. That was kind of sad. I was hoping to see him get in there. Um, but, you know, Roquan Smith, their first-round pick, makes an impact. Leonard Floyd's still there. But offensively, what... Do you guys come out of that game expecting from them moving forward? And maybe more more uh, in particular, what do you see or expect from Mitch Trubisky coming out of that game? Because he started strong, but then in the second half, he, he looked like a rookie again. I think that rookie-esque nature came from the fact that you got Aaron Rodgers breathing down your neck. Like, it is hard for any quarterback in the NFL yeah. to run and a he, strong he's set. He's that, like... His his natural face just looks scared. Yeah, I I'd be scared <laughs> right? too. Like you just look at him and you're like that poor guy. Like, if I know that every first like down I don't get is another the other forty side. yeah <laughs> another forty seconds Aaron Rodgers gets to tear my defense apart. Like I think the pros for this team is that Allen Robinson was healthy and finished a good. complete game. Yeah, without they, they got to get him pulling the ball an ACL. Second half, first half they got him the ball and it made a difference. Second half. He Four receptions for 61 yards. Good start. Not Good a bad start. line. Good start to get him. Back. Jordan Howard, 15 carries for 80-plus yards. Not a bad line. More of Tariq Cohen, I think, did more of the damage or more of the defensive pull. But like I said before, it's tough to look good with Aaron Rodgers doing that to you. I think next game, and they play up against the uh, who is it? The Seahawks, I think, is their next opponent. Um, and that's a, that's a big opportunity for them because the Seahawks don't look good in general. So that could be a good opportunity for Trubisky to kind of put his foot down. I think it's just a comfortability factor. Just these guys have their first game playing with each other. They're all new. Burton, Robinson, Trubisky playing with each other. I think it's just a point of 
yes, they've had training camps and things like that, but now you're in live games, and it's just first game, Packers? All right, <laughs> let's take that L. I mean, it's tough. At I think, Lambeau. Yeah, I think going forward, it will just be much better, and he'll progress, and you'll see this offense really um, coming together. Another game with a couple of NFC playoff contenders, or so we think at this point, was the Vikings and 49ers, where Kirk Cousins makes his debut and they pull away from San Fran. Jimmy G, first loss as a San Francisco 49er in a start. First loss, in period. A start period, yeah, in his career. Uh, didn't look great. Jimmy G did not look great. Uh, Kirk Cousins looked pretty good. And, you know, Tyreek Hill, excuse me, uh, Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen, they get theirs in this game. Any takeaways from Vikings 49ers? Richard Sherman looked nasty. He was shut down on whoever he took. He played most likely most of the time on the left side of the field, which is the right side of the quarterback offense, and that was a shutdown for him, uh, which is a huge boost because it was a free agent that we know he's talented. We know Richard Sherman's a top-tier guy, but he's hitting right. that age it's mark. How much is in the tank? Slowly getting to that age number, and this is a good start for the San Francisco team to know that they still have a top-tier guy. I'm going to have to disagree with you, Brandon. Um, Jimmy GQ looks good all the time. Um, <laughs> Is he his hair? Yeah. Ooh. Awesome. But, uh, yeah, it was an interesting game. I mean, especially from the Vikings' point of view, I didn't have a lot of confidence in Cousins and that offensive line. I wanted to see if there was going to be a lot of pressure, but he managed to work around it, and Diggs and Thielen both came up strong. But going to the 49ers' side, it's, I think – given time, Shanahan and that offense. I mean, to go against the Vikings defense, which is arguably the number one defense in the NFL, that's tough. Yeah. Um, but I think they'll be able to bounce back and continue throughout the season. Great game coming up this coming week between the Vikings and the Packers. First time we get to see them face off. Aaron Rodgers' health is still a question mark, but he said right after the game that he was playing next week. So the goal is to still play him next week despite the knee sprain in week one. Any early handicap or thoughts on the Vikings-Packers matchup? If you don't prepare for Aaron Rodgers, and I think Mike Zimmer said it in a quote in his press conference. Uh, well, I mean, they're definitely going to prepare for, because yeah, they you don't said, have to prepare for Deshaun Kaiser. With, yeah, with they their said that. Somebody asked him, like, are you going to game plan that Aaron Rodgers is going to play? And Zimmer came out and was like, Aaron Rodgers walks on the water. water. Yeah. We're going to prepare for this guy to play. <laughs> um, I think this is going to be one of the best games that we're going to see because Aaron Rodgers is going to Aaron Rodgers regardless. But Kirk Cousins is in an environment where I don't think he's ever been used to from Washington. I don't think any team in the NFC East brings that Lambeau vibe to it when Ouch. he was playing it. No, Ouch. because Kirk Cousins doesn't... Just stab my heart. Okay. <laughs> Philly was great. <laughs> Philly was great last year, but he'd play at max two games at Philly. Right, he doesn't have the. And, and, he's not and, used and to it, it wasn't for the division, right? You know, yeah. it, it doesn't. It didn't have the same stakes that this game seems to have. And he's, even a, he's on a much better team, and he's on a much better competition. When the Washington With a much better defense. Yeah, when the Redskins played the Eagles, it wasn't really a competition. So this is going to be a cool environment for him, and I'm really interested to see how he reacts. I mean, matchup of the week: Vikings Packers. Yeah, I mean, some could argue Jacksonville Patriots. But I think this yeah, one, yeah. the greatest quarterback the of all time, and Tom it's, Brady. It's just for Rodgers, not only the Vikings game planning, but it's for the Packers. Will he injure that leg even more? Like, it's a matter of, can are they able to keep the pressure off? I mean, you have 
Everson Griffin. You also have just Eric Kendricks. Both these guys rushing. This, you know they're going to blitz sometimes, especially knowing Rodgers with that leg. It's it's going to be tough, but if Aaron Rodgers, you're telling me he's going to play, you can't underestimate him. You just got to go out there and play ball. This is Blue Hen Sports Cage in 91.3 WVUD. The next question I want to ask you guys, and this could get into a bigger philosophical discussion that I don't know if we have the time to fully do, but quickly, this question has come up on all of the different take shows and talk shows throughout the week after Sam Darnold's big game on Monday night and Saquon Barkley's slow start with the Giants. And the question is, at the number two overall spot last year, should the Giants have taken Darnold at quarterback instead of Barkley? Darnold went the pick after to the Jets. Number one was Baker Mayfield to the Browns. The Giants passed on Darnold. They passed on Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, Lamar Jackson, those quarterbacks, and instead took Saquon Barkley. No shot. Uh, They made the correct decision with Saquon Barkley. That running game was pitiful. So if you look at the comparison, do the Giants need um, a running back more than the, a quarterback? I don't think it's close. Eli Manning has at least a season left in the tank. He's At Eli's worst, he's serviceable. Like, bad Eli's a serviceable quarterback. He's two-time Super Bowl champion. He, he has his games. But to say that the Giants made the wrong call with Barkley or that they should have picked Darnold given how Darnold played, I think it's ridiculous. You need that running back much more than you needed Sam Darnold. What do you think, Nick? I agree with Jake. I'm just, I'm still sticking with Barkley. I mean, that game he had against the Jaguars defense. I mean, come on. He looked just, well. No, see, I think he looked really bad against really? the Jaguars. He had one he had run. Really, he had one really big of 68 run. yards for that touchdown, and so he finished with what 102 yards in the day. So subtract that one run. Given this is a top tier Jaguars defense, but if you're this first half, he did not th- look good. This up-and-coming god of a running back that everyone's well, saying is... The, say that. Well, people are saying Who is your everyone? <laughs> but, but people are saying he's the best running back to come out of the draft in the last 10 years. So, and to just do that, you should be able to take any defense and be successful, just like Rodgers is against any I defense. I mean, that's Brady's the against first game of his career. But I think both if, of these guys, you need to give them time in order to talent, make a decision like that. Um, Darnold played a Lions team that I think will be a just a... Dumpster fired. They're just going to possibly go zero and sixteen, just because Stafford had no help, like defensively, and just yeah. But Barkley, I still think you stick with him. I mean, you guys can. Oh say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying trade Saquon Barkley. No, no, well, no, no. That's but not the question. But he's saying Donald. that. Yeah. Oh, okay. But if you guys are telling me take away that 68 yard run, things like that, it just means it still happened. Like you, he broke off for that run. True. It, yeah. He still scored it. It's. Mm-hmm. Finish me that stat line, pretty good to me. Pretty good start, and again, like Jake said, Eli's got some seasons left in the tank. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. The Boston Red Sox, a hundred wins on the season, and we still have multiple weeks to go. There are ten games up on the New York Yankees in the American League East, who are one of many of the teams that just kind of look set in the AL playoffs. I mean, there really doesn't look like there's going to be a lot of shaking up here on that side of the playoff bracket as we enter the later weeks of September. I think the AL's done. I think where it stands right now is where it's going to end. I think Boston, Cleveland, and Houston will win their divisions, and then Oakland and Yankees will come in um, for the wild card. I think those are the best teams, best five teams. Like, it's no question about it. But what is kind of intriguing here is how good the Yankees have been playing 
and they're still 10 games back. Like, they, Glaber Torres and Miguel Andujar have looked really good. Like, really good. Stanton's keep, has been hitting the ball well. Their pitching's been better. And they're still 10 games out. Is there, I know there's no way, way to catch this Red Sox team, but is there, oh, like, hope? Are we pretty solidified that the Red Sox are the best team in the American League by a large enough margin that we shouldn't worry about anyone else? Well, playoffs-wise, yes, you should worry about other teams. I don't think there's any team in baseball that can say in a seven-game series we're locks against anybody. But, I don't but as far as the division, 10 games to go with, or 10 games up with 16 games to go, that's locked in. There, there's no need to worry about that. Um, and they are, you know, they, the playoff berth's already there. They'll, they'll wrap up the American League East in the next couple of days. When we get to the playoffs, I don't think you can discount what Houston will bring to the table and what Cleveland can bring against Boston in a potential seven-game series. This is the first time in a long time that I'm looking at a playoff team, and I'm saying this... Mom, they're the favorite by far. I mean, this is the best team I, in baseball. Boston, but... and Chris Sale, Chris Sale's going to pitch this upcoming weekend, a simulated... Oh, no, a pitch like three innings or something. If he is back to Chris Sale, I'm... I'm If I'm the Red Sox, and like I, you said, a seven-game series, they don't feel like a lock, I'd feel like a lock if I'm the Red Sox. If I'm watching them, I'd pick them, no doubt about it, against any single other person. I think this is the first year in a while that I'm like, wow, this team is ridiculous. It's pretty filthy, not going to lie. I mean, it's just a matter of, again, Sale coming back, other players managing to stay healthy, not losing anybody this late in the season before playoffs. Um, but, yeah, Red Sox just look unreachable at this point for the Yankees to even in playoffs to compete with. They've just been playing on a complete different level. In the National League, the wild card race is Oof. extremely close. Right now, if the season ended today, Milwaukee would be in, as would St. Louis. The Cardinals are two games above the Dodgers and four games above the Diamondbacks. The Phillies are pretty much toast. They're 74-71. and 71. They're 2-8 and eight in their last 10, and they haven't won a series since the first week of August. They're six and a half back in the wild card. And the Nationals are seven games back. But it really comes down to those four teams I mentioned first. The Brewers, the Cardinals, the Dodgers, and the Diamondbacks. Coming into the season, the Los Angeles Dodgers were looked at by many to be a World Series contender, not just a playoff contender. And if the season ended today, they wouldn't be in. They're two games back. What what has gone on with this team? Injuries have obviously been a factor. But what has gone on? First and second part of the question is, do you think they'll make a push to get into one of those two wild card slots? It's pretty obvious to tell you what happened, and it's Clayton Kershaw. I mean, that's pretty much it. He's been hurt for a, more than he's played this entire year, and we talk about a lot how there's um, not one player that makes a baseball team, but Clayton Kershaw is massive for that rotation because then that's one less game Rich Hill gets the pitch, which is huge for that organization, and he's the best pitcher in baseball. So that slowed them down. They've looked out of shape because then they're um, the deeper you get into the rotation, the much worse they got. Um, and that's what slowed them down. I think that's pretty much it because their hitting has been good. They've obviously lost um, who they lose in week two, um, like really Corey early. Seager. Corey They lost Corey Seager really early into the season. Um, but I think that's it. It's the injuries that's gotten to them. But am I... Like, what should say, like, worried or think that they're not going to make the playoffs? Well, do you think they're going to make the playoffs? No. Do you think they make a push? No, I don't think they're going to make it. Uh, I think they're going to slow down, and I think if any team's going to overcome them, it'll be the Diamondbacks in their own division. I, 
I want to look at their schedules to see if they play each other at the end of the year. Um, but I think the Diamondbacks are better poised than the Dodgers are. The Brewers right now are two games back of the Cubs in the loss column. They both have 84 wins. So the Cubs are right now the division leader, and the Brewers are the first wild card team. Then also the Cardinals are right behind them, two and a half games back of the Brewers. So looking at those three teams, a couple weeks out, where do you see those three teams fitting in here in the playoff picture? I still have Cubs number one, probably exactly where it stands, Cubs, Brewers, Cardinals, um, just because the Cubs have just so much depth. Um, not only in the rotation, but just in the lineup as well, and just the stars who have been there before, especially on the World Series run, you have that experience. Um, so they know what a late push it looks like. The Brewers, I like what they're doing. They just have a lot of um, quick hit guys, fast, get on the base, and then the Cardinals. I just don't know if they're going to be able to compete with either of those teams or the rest of the NL in order to make up those games and get ahead. Besi- well, I'll say this. Besides Madison Bumgarner in the postseason, there's no one else that I'm more afraid of than the St. Louis Cardinals come postseason time, especially with Matt Carpenter playing like Matt Carpenter. They still have Ozuna coming from the trade, who's been great for them. I, I agree with you that I don't think regular season they're going to do it, but if this team makes the postseason, it's going to be hard to think that there is a hotter team or a scarier team not name the Boston Red Sox.